Great. Well, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, really appreciate it. We're very glad to have uh, Professor Randy Barnett of Georgetown here to discuss his new book. Professor Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. Uh, he's also director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, which he founded to help further the study of proper constitutional interpretation, specifically originalism or textualism. Professor Barnett plays a significant role in the political debates surrounding the court and the Constitution, and he's participated directly in the development of constitutional litigation in the Supreme Court and lower courts. In 2010, the New York Times called him the intellectual godfather of the constitutional arguments against the Affordable Care Act's uh, individual mandate. He's written many books, including Restoring the Law's Constitution and The Structure of Liberty, Justice, and the Rule of Law, and most recently, uh, the book we're here to discuss, A Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. And on a personal note, I'll add that I've known Randy since my first year in law school, and our 15 years of discussions have been an intellectual challenge and a personal joy. It's a pleasure to host him here today to discuss the court, the Constitution, and the country. So with that, I'll turn it over to Randy to offer some remarks, and then we'll have a, a conversation and some Q&A. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for inviting me. Um, what Adam didn't, what he left out is that the reason why he knew me since he was a first-year law student is because he had me for contracts when I visited at Harvard Law School. And um, he disagreed with everything I had to say then. And what a coincidence. I switched over to constitutional law from contracts, and he's still disagreeing with almost everything I have to say. So he's consistent, or I'm consistent, or we're both consistent. Um, but it's, he's nevertheless very generous uh, in inviting me over here, notwithstanding um, our agreements. We do agree about some things. Um, and uh, thanks to Twitter, we're discovering areas of commonality. Uh, up until now, I thought we disagreed about everything. And it turns out that's not exactly true. Uh, but here, we're, I, the, my talk today is about uh, one of the things we don't agree about. And so it'll be interesting to hear what his response is. I have some idea what it's going to be from his review of the book in the Wall Street Journal. But it'll be interesting to hear what, how he responds uh, to this talk, which is uh, entitled um, How John Roberts Gave Us Donald Trump. Um, I don't think uh, that Hoover promoted it uh, as that, under that title. I don't know that they did. Um, so for some reason, uh, conservative organizations are very skittish about that title, and they don't like putting it in their promotional materials. I don't know why that would be. Um, but I, 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 I do want to say that although my thesis is going to be that, that, uh, that John Roberts did contribute to the rise of Donald Trump, I'm not claiming that he was the only factor uh, that gave rise to Donald Trump. I just think he is one of the overlooked factors. He deserves some credit. You know, I want to give people credit where they deserve it, and I think that he deserves credit uh, for this social development. Now, um, obviously, the connection between John Roberts and Donald Trump is the Affordable Care Act challenge. And it also is not only what gave rise to Donald Trump, but it's what gave rise to my book, Our Republican Constitution. I wrote the book um, after, uh, obviously, after the Affordable Care Act challenge was decided in 2012. It tells the story in Chapter 1 of how I became involved in the constitutional challenge and how I developed the argument that that the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional, um, uh, which was... um, Uh, which was characterized by other law professors, by most constitutional law professors, as um, uh, frivolous, um, and even by one law professor as sanctionable. 
Um, somebody, he, he actually said in a blog post that any, any lawyer who signed a pleading, and he was basically at that time located at, at Florida State where he was close by the Florida Attorney General's office, any lawyer that signed a pleading in the case was likely to be sanctioned um, for having filed a frivolous pleading. Uh, I am unhappy to report that that professor is now a colleague of mine at Georgetown. Um, so he, this was not apparently uh, uh, sufficient to cost him that – this assessment of our litigation was not – sufficient to cost him that position. Um, what I described in the book is the process by which, first of all, I, I got involved in it, which started with a blog post at the, on the Politico's blog, The Arena, in September of 2009, where I started arguing about this, uh, to a, a fateful meeting at the Federal Society of National Lawyers Convention at the Mayflower Hotel. Um, uh, and then one thing led to another, uh, particularly my association with the Heritage Foundation and doing a legal memorandum developing the argument for why it was unconstitutional. Uh, I can tell I, so I tell this background story about how it was that our memorandum led the Republicans in the Senate to oppose Obamacare on constitutional grounds, raise a point of constitutional order, and how just one thing led to another. And over a two-year period of time, what happened was uh, nothing really short of remarkable. Um, in just two years, we went from a constitutional argument uh, that some had called frivolous and off the wall, to use Jack Balkan's uh, phrase, uh, to a dramatic three days of oral argument in the Supreme Court, a historic three days, eight hours of oral argument in the Supreme Court on this supposedly nonsense argument. And not only that, not only that, but we garnered five votes for our argument that an individual purchase mandate was beyond the powers of Congress under the Commerce and the Necessary and Proper Clause. Now, as you know, normally, uh, yeah, we lost. I think you probably heard. We, we ultimately lost the case. Now, normally, when you win on the law, you win the case. That is the way it is supposed to work. Um, and, but in this case, although we had convinced five justices of the soundness of our legal argument, we still lost. And we lost because, as it turns out, getting the Constitution right was not enough to win. Let me emphasize that. Getting the Constitution right was not enough to win. We also needed a better understanding of the proper role of judges in a constitutional republic, something about which many conservatives have been very wrong for a very long time. Now, my last book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, that Adam mentioned, was about how getting the Constitution right means identifying its original public meaning and then what that meaning was with respect to various clauses, including the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clause. That's what I covered in that book. My new book, Our Republican Constitution, is about the proper role of judges in enforcing that meaning. Since the rise of the modern conservative movement, conservatives have preached judicial deference to popularly elected legislatures under the rubric of judicial restraint that goes by the name judicial restraint. And even after my friend and hero, Ed Meese, as Ronald Reagan's attorney general, added to the conservative legal movement a commitment to originalism, conservatives like Robert Bork, for example, professed adherence to the Supreme Court's precedents that had overridden that meaning. As he said during his ill-fated confirmation hearings, the current broad powers upheld by the Supreme Court under, and now I'm quoting Bork's testimony in front, of, uh, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, under the Commerce Clause and the federal power generally was probably not intended, he said, 
But these precedents have to stand because it is too late in the day to overturn them. Too much has happened. Too much has grown up around them, statutes, institutions, expectations, and so forth. I have said that, meaning Bork. I have said that about a number of areas, so I don't think an originalist, a person who believes in original intent, can do without a doctrine of precedent. Otherwise, he would be constantly trying to rip up the nation and its laws, and you can't do that. Conservative icon and hero, Robert Bork. Or, as Justice Scalia put the matter in his characteristic bluntness, quote, I may be an originalist, but I am not a nut, unquote. Moreover, Bork, Scalia, and other good conservatives refused to acknowledge the original meaning of such rights-recognizing provisions as the Ninth Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the Fourteenth. Though, when Justice Scalia was confronted with a Ninth Amendment argument in the case of Troxel versus Granville, a 2000 uh, a year 2000 case that involved the right of a parent to raise her child as she saw fit? Think about that for a minute. Do you have a constitutional right to raise your child, your own child, as you see fit? It's not mentioned in the Constitution. If you're going to take the judicial conservative view that any rights not mentioned in the Constitution are not constitutional rights, then you have no constitutional right to raise your own children. And the state could take those children away and raise them themselves. And there'd be nothing in the Constitution to stop them from doing that under this reading of the Constitution. But that's actually not exactly the position that Justice Scalia took in Troxel versus Granville. It was a five to four decision. You'll be happy to know that the Supreme Court upheld your right to raise your children as you see fit. Five to four. Justice Thomas, I should say, was in the majority of that opinion, that decision. Uh, And Justice Scalia was in dissent. But in his dissent, he made the move that this book is about. The move from meaning to judicial role. It's a standard conservative move. So here's what he did. I'm going to read you the excerpt from his dissenting opinion in Troxel. In my view, he said, a right of parents to direct the upbringing of their children is among the unalienable rights with which the Declaration of Independence proclaims all men are endowed by their creator. So far, so good. Next. And in my view, that right is also among the other rights retained by the people, which the Ninth Amendment says the Constitution's enumeration of rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage. Hey, we're doing great. We're going to win this case, right? Well, we did win the case, but Justice Scalia was in dissent. Next, here comes the move. The Declaration of Independence, however, is not a legal prescription conferring powers upon the courts. And the Constitution's refusal to deny or disparage other rights is far removed from affirming any one of them. And even farther removed from authorizing judges to identify what they might be and to enforce the judges list against laws duly enacted by the people. There's the whole move there encapsulated in one paragraph. Um, Start with meaning. You can even concede meaning if you want to and then shift to judicial role. Now, this is not an unprincipled position, but unfortunately, it's based on principles that modern conservatives have inherited from the left. And by left, I mean the political progressives of the early 20th century, uh, early 20th century. Now, in my book, I devote a whole chapter, chapter five, to the rise of progressivism and what I call the democratic constitution. Those who adhere to a democratic constitution view we the people as a group that is entitled to rule according to its will. 
But the will of the people can only be the preferences of a majority of the people. We know that. A democratic constitution is therefore needed to establish a mechanism by which the preferences of the majority can be represented, to use Akhil Amar's phrase, represented, and then enacted into law. And anything that interferes with the will of the majority, like unelected, unaccountable judges, is suspect. Now, this was the argument made by political progressives against the judiciary that was obstructing their effort to enact their political agenda. In the book, I tell the story about how progressive presidents like Teddy Roosevelt, Republican, Franklin, uh, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, Democrat, Republican Herbert Hoover, a progressive, yes, Hoover was a progressive, and Democrat Franklin Roosevelt had loaded the Supreme Court with like-minded justices. And then how, in 1946, after the Republicans took control of Congress, some on the court began backtracking from their commitments to judicial restraint. 1946 turns out to be an important year. For this deviation, they were labeled, for the first time that we can find, judicial activists by progressive historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. in a fascinating 1947 article in Fortune magazine that I discuss at length in the book. He basically analyzes all the justices on the court as the Republicans are now going to take power again for the first time in however many years. Judicial restraint is not looking so good to some on the left. And so the court starts being divided on this issue, and he analyzes each of the justices, and he calls one group the lions of judicial restraint, and the other group the judicial activists. The judicial activists he identifies with Yale Law School's legal, School of Legal Realism. He never mentions that the restraint people are kind of a, uh, associated with the Harvard Law School. No coincidence here, to my right, is a, a proud product of the Harvard Law School, as is John Roberts, I should Sometimes say. Sometimes prouder than others. Yes. So, um, it, so there's kind of a Harvard-Yale split on the Supreme Court between the restraint people, the Holmesian restraint people, Holmes again, Harvard, Thayer, Harvard, and then the activists who were realists associated with the Yale Law School. Um, when the modern conservative political movement arose in the 1950s with Bill Buckley and all he was doing, and in the 60s and also in the 70s, conservatives simply embraced the stance of the judicial restraint progressives of the New Deal against the activist progressive justices of the Warren Court. That's where the split comes from. It's a split on the left. Conservatives embraced one part of the left agenda against the other part of the left agenda. Now, even, even as Republicans, therefore, these conservatives were small-D Democrats, some proudly to admit it. According... Um, adhering to the democratic constitution's vision of we the people as a group, which is entitled to rule by majority rule. Now, although this may have been the only, only respectable choice to make as a professor or, in a, or as a student in an elite law school, it was a false choice nonetheless. What was lost was the vision uh, on which our republican constitution is based. The vision of we the people as individuals. Now it's revealing that Justice Scalia in Troxel cited the Declaration of Independence, then only to dismiss its relevance as law. As I explain in Chapter 2, actually I think it's Chapter 1 of, of the book, the Declaration was the founding document of the United States. First came the Articles, then came two tries at government, Articles, Constitution, but the United States was founded 
by the Declaration. And it declared the principle on which the country was founded, and that principle is first come rights and then comes government. First come rights and then comes government. First comes we the people as individuals who are endowed with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, each of which is an individual right, I must stress. And then the next sentence of the Declaration says, quote, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So first come rights in one sentence, next comes government, to secure these pre-existing rights. Now these governments that are instituted among us are not us and do not express our will. Governments, by this light, are our servants. They're not us, our servants. And they're tasked with the job of securing our rights as sovereign individuals. A good constitution under this vision is a Republican constitution that both, on the one hand, empowers a government to energetically secure our rights, that's why the government's being formed, while at the same time protecting the rights retained by the people from being violated or infringed by their servants or their agents. A Republican constitution, therefore, is needed to provide the law that governs those who govern us. This is not the law that governs us. This is the law that governs those who govern us. And by the way, each and every one of them, we don't consent to that. We're never asked to consent to this. But each and every one of the people who are bound by this Constitution voluntarily take an oath to it. Each, it's unanimous consent to this. Each one of them takes. And those who govern us can no more properly change the law that governs them without going through the amendment process described in this, in this law, then we can change or ignore the laws that govern us without going through the legislative process. We can't change the speed limits because we don't like them. We, 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 don't, we don't have a living speed limit that we can just adjust to fit the circumstances. We have to go through the legislative process or we have to pay the fine. Under a Republican Constitution, judges also are servants of the people, and they have a job to do. Their job is to keep all the other constitutional actors in line. Their duty is to enforce the Constitution against any law that exceeds the just powers of any Republican legislature. In a conflict between an individual member of the sovereign people and their servants in the legislature, when that conflict arises, judges are supposed to provide what Madison called independent tribunals of justice. That's what they're supposed to be, independent and neutral between the two parties to a lawsuit. On the one hand, a member of the sovereign people, us, and on the other hand, a member of our servant bodies, one of the legislative branches or administrative branches. But this was not the view of judges that modern conservatives adopted. Between their commitment to judicial deference to majoritarian rule by legislators, to their acceptance of precedents, that they admitted were contrary to the original meaning of the Constitution, to their insistence that whole clauses of the Constitution were unfit for judicial enforcement, judicial conservatives gave us a very tepid commitment to the original meaning of the Constitution. And then they gave us John Roberts. Now, I believe John Roberts is a good and decent man. 
I know he was a brilliant Supreme Court advocate, probably the best of his generation. And though I've only met him a few times, I would be happy to have him as a friend, although I think the, long, the more I give the speech, the less likely that is going to happen. But John Roberts was appointed and selected by President George W. Bush, a Republican, because he was a judicial conservative who hewed to the doctrine of judicial restraint, or as he put it in his hearings, the doctrine of judicial minimal, minimalism. Now, in my book, I explain how that commitment to judicial restraint gave us Obamacare now and possibly forever. Now, on the one hand, Justice Roberts affirmed the Republican limits on the scope of federal powers by holding that individual purchase mandates were beyond Congress's power under both its commerce and its necessary and proper clause. In fact, if you were in court that day, and happily I was not in court that day, I was at my computer uh, writing op-eds and stuff, getting ready and, and fielding press inquiries, so I was following it on SCOTUS blog. Luckily, not following it on Fox or CNN, because if you were in the courtroom that day, or if you were Fox and CNN, reporters quickly scanning the opinions and then flashing a news, you would flashed that our challenge had succeeded just by listening to what he said at the beginning of his opinion. Everybody in the courtroom thought we'd won, or many, many people thought we'd won. And, and CNN and Fox both announced we won. My mom texted me her thrilling, thrilled congratulations for having won the case, and I had to say, no, Mom, we lost, because I'd followed SCOTUS. They'd actually read the whole opinion before they told us who won. And, um, and my mom said, no, no, Fox said you won, you won. I said, no, Mom, I'm sorry, Fox is wrong. Um, we lost. Um, so he started off with this fantastic opinion of creating five-vote majority for the fact that our legal argument was right, and then he pivoted, there came the but and the however, when he invoked the Democratic Constitution's mantra of judicial restraint, adopting what he called a saving construction that turned the individual insurance requirement, which is what the text of the law said, which was enforced by a penalty, which is what the text of the law said, into an option to buy insurance or pay a modest, non-coercive tax. Or, as he put it, granting the act the full measure of deference owed to federal statutes, it can be so read. Granting the act the full measure of deference owed to federal statutes, it can be so read. The natural reading of the statute, he said, was our reading. The reading he gave it is what he called a reasonably possible reading. Actually, not the, not the meaning of the statute, as it turns out, right? And then he defended that move by saying, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. Could have been channeling Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. when he said that. It is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. I'm going to come back to that sentence shortly. Now, perhaps he expected his split-the-baby approach to be received by conservatives with equanimity. It would be understandable if he did, given the history of the conservative legal movement, but it wasn't. Many on the right were outraged because they believed it was the job of the Supreme Court to hold Congress to its enumerated powers and thereby protect the liberties of we the people, even from a bare majority in Congress who enacted Obamacare. In this way, I think the Obamacare decision has provided a political inflection point in how conservatives conceive of the role of judges. It's probably why many of you were willing to even come to this talk today. As a result of Roberts upholding Obamacare, in the name of judicial deference, 
the trend of opinion among conservatives has moved sharply away from judicial conservatism, is how I think it should be referred to, and restraint towards what I think is better called constitutional conservatism, which favors judges enforcing the original meaning of the text, even if it means invalidating popularly enacted laws. But sadly, we now see that while John Roberts' ruling in the Obamacare case led constitutional conservatives to turn against, or at least some constitutional conservatives, to turn against judicial restraint, it also caused Republican voters to turn against constitutional conservatism and even against the Constitution itself. Let us recall the state of American politics leading up to the Obamacare decision. It's very useful to think back to those days. A popular movement calling themselves the Tea Party had arisen spontaneously to oppose the Bush bailouts of the banks and the car companies. Then, with the election of President Obama, it turned its attention to the Democrats' effort and dream to finally achieve their dream of putting the government in control of our doctors in the same way that they have taken control of the teachers who educate our children. To turn sovereign citizens essentially into subjects and supplicants. Using the internet and free conference calling, the grassroots Tea Party organized nationally to resist this by employing the checks and balances of our Republican Constitution. The Affordable Care Act that had emerged from the Senate was never intended to become law. This is not news to anybody who followed it. It was merely the means to get the health insurance bill into a conference committee with the House where the real plan would then be drafted and then sent back to the House and Senate for their ratification. By electing Scott Brown to the Senate, Tea Party activists in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, mind you, had made that impossible by depriving Senate Democrats of a supermajority in Congress, a veto-proof majority in Congress, in the Senate. Now, either the House had to accept the Senate bill in toto, to which they objected, they had serious objections, or there'd be no fundamental transformation of America's health care system. By the time the House swallowed its pride and accepted the Affordable Care Act with some minor tinkering, the states in our Republican Constitution had mounted a challenge against the law on the theory that we had proposed in our, in our Heritage Foundation legal policy, a legal memorandum arguing why the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional. And while that lawsuit was pending for two years, the Tea Party elected enough new constitutionalist members of Congress to flip the House to Republican control, thereby ensuring that if the law was invalidated by the Supreme Court, a single payer or some variation on socialized medicine could not be enacted by Congress. And the Tea Party did all of this despite having their efforts, their organizing efforts, suppressed by the Obama IRS. Now, for two years... America was transfixed by the legal challenge to Obamacare in a way that has not occurred in, any of my, in my lifetime or the lifetime of anyone else in this room. There just hasn't been a case like this where people were monitoring the case from the district court levels up through all the courts of appeals up to the Supreme Court. Normally, when any, even insiders start thinking about a Supreme Court case, it's when it's at the court, and usually not until it's been decided, if then. A genuine popular constitutionalist 
uprising had set the stage for a renewal of our Republican Constitution and its limited powers. Tea Party activists and just plain old Republicans looked to the Supreme Court to uphold a limit on the growth of federal power. Not even a reduction of power, just a stopping of an expansion, which is what Obamacare represented. Now, it's true that Democrats and the left intelligentsia would have screamed bloody murder if this had happened, as they did scream bloody murder after three days of oral argument suggested correctly that we had five votes for our theory. But had the courts invalidated the law, polls show that decision would have enjoyed the support of a majority of the American people. And it would have taught the American people an invaluable lesson about their constitution and about the courts. No Americans knew about the Gun-Free School Zone Act that the court had invalidated in 1995. Most Americans were clueless about the civil cause of action for gender-motivated violence that the court had, had invalidated in the 2000 case of the Morrison v. U.S., the other case I was mentioning, the 95 case, is Lopez versus U.S., U.S. v. Lopez, then U.S. v. Morrison. And only a, major, a minority of Americans truly cared about the use of medical marijuana that the court had failed to protect in 2005 in the Rach case that I argued in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of Angel Rach and Diane Monson. But virtually everyone who paid any attention to public affairs was aware of our challenge to Obamacare. Had it been invalidated and the decision remanded to the now divided Congress to devise a new and perhaps even genuine reform of existing, the existing health insurance scheme which needed reform, it would have shown the American people that there were indeed limits on the power of Congress would have taught them a very important lesson. Perhaps more importantly, it would have shown the Tea Party constitutionalists that their efforts had finally paid off. They had put their faith in the Constitution and the courts, and that faith had been rewarded. But instead, what they got was a good, hard kick in the teeth. And it was my wife that made me say, kick in the teeth. As a former Cook County State's Attorney, I had another phrase that first came to mind. And the effect of that kick was felt in Indiana in the primary in which Ted Cruz was competing against Donald Trump, and he got beat, soundly beat. Now listen again to the words of John Roberts, to the Tea Party activists who were counting on him as their servant. Quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices, unquote. Now, what else did that mean to them if not, it is not our job to uphold limits on federal powers? Go away from the courthouse. Go away from the judges. Go away from the Constitution itself and fight this out amongst yourselves. Now, law exists in part to direct the natural urge for self-preservation and self-defense into peaceful channels. And the Constitution exists, this exists, to provide the law that governs those who govern us. And the judiciary was created and empowered by Article Three of the Constitution, in part, to hold the government within its just powers. And by the way, that is what the Declaration refers to the powers of government as. They're just deriving their just powers 
from the consent of the governed, and by so doing, to avoid a Hobbesian war, political war of all against all. But at the very moment he was called upon to teach the American people the value of our Republican Constitution, Chief Justice John Roberts asserted the judicial restraint that the Democratic, um, of, the Democrat, of the Democratic Constitution and turned them away. And that, my friends, was the end of our constitutional moment, what Bruce Ackerman calls a genuine constitutional moment. And that was the beginning of the end of constitutional conservatism as a viable political movement. And it kindled the resentment and populism that led to Donald Trump. When I began law school at Harvard, I loved the Constitution, like most Americans. And then I took constitutional law and read Supreme Court opinion after Supreme Court opinion, expressly explaining how every clause of the Constitution that limited the scope of federal and state power did not really mean what it said. And we were taught that every Supreme Court case that reigned in federal or state powers, like the much vilified case of Lochner versus New York, was evil and to be repudiated. By the time I'd finished my constitutional law class, I was finished with the Constitution. If the Supreme Court did not care about the Constitution, I concluded, why should I? When I became a law professor, I decided to become a contract scholar where I got to teach Adam contract law, where they actually take writing seriously in contract law. Writings still matter in contract law, believe it or not. And only very reluctantly did I get dragged into thinking and writing about constitutional law, thanks to the Federalist Society, actually. Just gradually. It was like Al Pacino. They Just when I'm out, they pulled me back in. After Chief Justice Roberts' decision to uphold Obamacare, while conceding the validity of our constitutional arguments, not like he said we were wrong. He said we were right. Those who were once putting their, again, putting their faith in the Constitution reacted as I had as a law student. If the Supreme Court didn't care about the Constitution, why should I? What good was the Constitution, after all? Why bother with it? In sum, like the critical legal studies movement of the 1980s, Chief Justice Roberts told the people that there was no constitutional limits on federal power. There was only politics. Now go out and get your own Obama to right whatever wrongs you think you've suffered. And now... They have. And their new political paladin's name is Donald Trump, a man who knows nothing about the Constitution and who couldn't care less. And neither, by the way, do his supporters, his core supporters. Now, it's hard to think of two people who are as different from each other as the well-mannered John Roberts and the crude Donald Trump. Yet, in the end, they both believe that courts ought to bend to political will. They do. At least when the chips are down, they do. Donald Trump is what John Roberts told Republicans they needed to find, and they found him. So now what? What do those of us who still believe in our Republican Constitution do now? Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers. Heck, I actually don't know that I have any answers. But I'll tell you what I do recommend in the conclusion of our Republican Constitution. 
quoting now from the book, the first thing we need to revi is to revive our Republican Constitution is to remember our constitutional heritage. That's what I wrote. This, frankly, I said, is the principal purpose of the book. A book can only accomplish so much. It's only a book. Luckily, books can only accomplish so much, or we'd probably all be in the gulag by now. So a book can only accomplish so much, but one of the things it can accomplish is raise one's consciousness about your history and your heritage. In, to provide a Republican narrative that begins at the founding and carries through to the formation of the anti-slavery Republican Party that greatly improved the Constitution by providing much-needed federal constraints on state power, to remind us of how progressive justices replaced our Republican Constitution with their Democratic one, with the exception of certain favored rights that the activist progressive judges deemed to be fundamental. For those of you who don't like judicial discretion, they've empowered judicial discretion ever since 1938's footnote four, which said some rights get protected, some rights don't. Some groups get protected, some groups don't. Judges get to decide which are which. I'm against that, by the way. I'm with Justice Thomas's dissent in the most recent case in which he objected to that idea. In short, conservatives need to rediscover the difference between a democratic and a constitutional republic. Remember, if it was John Roberts who gave us Donald Trump, it was judicially conservative Republicans who gave us John Roberts. Now, second, I, we need what I call in the book a Republican politics and a constitutional Republican party. For better or worse, our Republican Constitution provides that the selecting of judges is going to be a political one. An elected president is going to nominate judges and an elected Senate is going to confirm them. Our Republican Constitution will not be restored in, in our two-party system until one of the two major parties embraces it as a central plank in their political platform. Now, the natural home of the, of, of the Republican Constitution, I think, is the modern Republican Party. It's not its home today, but it's the natural place for it to go because it was the antecedent of the Republican Party that was responsible for improving the Republican Constitution that the founders had given us a very imperfect version of when they passed the Reconstruction Amendments. Now, this is not yet the party, the Republican Party of today, and the rise of Trump threatens to purge the party of any commitment to constitutional conservatism at all. But if the existing Republican Party will not be a constitutional Republican Party, then we need to replace it with a new party that will. Parties die, and they are replaced by other parties. The Whigs died when they couldn't handle the slavery issue, and they were replaced by the Republicans who could. And this party can die as well. The Republican Party can die. Now, when I wrote my book, I confess I had in mind a constitutional conservative Tea Party candidate like Rand Paul, for whom I worked on his campaign, or Ted Cruz, who I also thought about working for during the last election, elevating the constitutional wing of the Republican Party over that of the GOP establishment. But now, thanks to the anti-constitutionalist populism that was unleashed in part by John Roberts, we have Donald Trump. So now what do we do? And all candor, again, I say I am not certain myself. On the one hand, I think the temptation is strong to support Trump over Clinton in the hope that he picks a constitutional conservative to replace Justice Scalia. I get why friends of mine feel that way. I, I don't even really argue with them that much about it. I, I get it. When, you, when you're faced with a choice of evils and they're both equally evil, I mean, it's, you can pick either one. You have advantages for either one, right? If Hillary Clinton is elected, we can be assured of losing control of the court for a generation. 
And the names that Trump has volunteered on his list of judges are good ones. The ones I know of, at least, are good ones. The ones I haven't, I don't know, I'm suspicious of, like I was suspicious of John Roberts, who I didn't know either. I mean, I knew his name, but I didn't know where he'd been all my life, right? Somehow I'd, he'd never managed to show up at anything that I was at or listening to. He managed to keep it all to himself somehow. So that made me suspicious even back then. But I have as little confidence that Trump is going to pick these conservative, these good judges as I have that he's going to build the big, beautiful wall that he's promised. Why? Because all he needs is somebody to tell him that what a constitutionalist judge is there for is to say no to him. He doesn't like that. I don't know if you noticed that about him, but he doesn't like that that much. So what will he do? What will he do? All he has to do is point a good old-fashioned constitutional, a judicial conservative judge, like, you know, Harvey Wilkerson, who thinks that Heller was a judicial activist opinion that was wrongly decided. All he has to do is point one of those guys, they'll have great credentials, and all the Harvard-type judicial restraint people are going to line up behind him and say what a great pick it was. You know it's what's going to happen. He'll be hailed as having made a great choice, and he'll have given us the same kind of judge that gave us Obamacare. So perhaps the need to, uh, to revive a constitutionalist Republican Party argues for sitting this election out. If Trump's elected, then the populism for which he stands, the anti-constitutionalist populism for which he stands, is going to be vindicated politically, and the Republican Party will be remade in that image. That's what happens when a, president, a candidate wins the presidency. It will be remade in the image of a European-style right-wing party. We'll have a party of the right like Europe has parties of the right. It'll be our party of the right. And that would be the end, I think, to restore, uh, uh, to revive a Republican, a constitutional Republican party for years and years to come, if ever. But if Trump should be defeated, and with him his populism, a new Republican party must take to heart the lessons of our Republican Constitution and reject the judicial conservatism and deference that conservatives have inherited from the progressives. It must embrace the constitutional federalism and separation of powers that are stru the structural ways that our Republican Constitution protects the rights retained by the people. But it also must embrace an engaged judiciary who will enforce all the strictures of our Republican Constitution to protect the individual rights of we the people, each and every one of us. Thanks. You know, you talk about your contracts class, made me think of a question I wasn't going to ask. It's a little biographical, but when I was your student in the contracts class, your casebook stood out from literally every other casebook I had because you took care to talk about not just the, you know, just reprint excerpts of the decision. You went into the history of the cases, the political context or the, you know, the social context around it. And, and your casebook was the only one that I had that really focused on that. And I, as I understand it, when you set about to do a con law casebook, you took the same we approach, did the right? same. I did the same thing. So in, your, in the new book, you talk about how the mistake of NFIB had been to focus just on the meaning of the Constitution and not the broader sort of political structural context. Um, or maybe I'm misreading that. I think you're misreading that, but okay. finish your question. I was going to ask, I mean, was there, was there something about contracts versus con law that had you thinking in a more social sort of context from the very beginning, more so than, than con law? Because I've noticed in the last few years, your, your constitutional arguments have focused more on sort of a, a, a political appeal in a way that 
you didn't have early on as sort of a, just a strict doctrinal constitutional scholar? Um, in terms of litigating that case, we litigated the case the way you litigate con law cases. You, we, it was all litigated based on existing doctrine. If we hadn't had a reading of Lopez, Morrison, and Rage that supported our argument, and we did, because actually because of my being the lawyer in the Rage case, I knew the Rage case better than most people did, and mm-hmm. certainly better than most law professors did. Um, we had a great doctrinal argument. It's the reason why we got five votes. We wouldn't have gotten all five votes if we hadn't had that great doctrinal argument. That's the way you handle it. And there was no way that we could have made an argument that would have persuaded John Roberts not to adopt his saving construction. That was not something that could have been done or avoided in the courtroom. You can't, as you know, I mean, as you would know, both either as a prosecutor in a courtroom or in the Supreme Court, uh, you can't make a judge do what they don't want. They also they will always have an argument on the other side they could follow if they want to. In this case, John Roberts is the only judge who heard the case of all the circuits, of all the districts, who adopted the saving construction approach to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, ask yourself this. If that outcome, if his position was legally compelled, which some people in his defense have said it was, he was following the law, they say. Following the law, he's the only jurist who heard the case, who thought this was the way you resolved it. We had one side that said it was clearly constitutional for the reasons the four progressive justices said, Mm -hmm. and we had four who said it was unconstitutional for the reasons some lower court judges said, and then you have John Roberts, who had this it's on the one hand, on the other hand approach. He's not following a pre-existing something. He's reaching the result he wants to reach. That's the legal realist approach, and there was no way we could have stopped him by making a different argument. if anything, the only way we might have, the only effect that making some more powerful argument might have been is he might have just said, okay, screw it, I'm just going to side with the progressives. Yeah. And then, he would have, then we wouldn't have at least won our five-vote majority for the limits on the Promise Clause. He could have done that. He didn't do that. That's what he thought was going to make us happy. Now, Kavanaugh came close in the D.C. Circuit to something that echoes Robert's approach, right? He decided not to reach the case at all because he interpreted the, the jurisdictional statute as covering as a tax, but I think you you would probably say Kavanaugh comes out of the same sort of he, judicial yeah. ethos that Roberts does. Yeah, he, he does, he did. His approach was yet another approach. Look at how many different ways out of enforcing the Constitution are available to you if you want to get out of doing it. He had another one. Jeff Sutton had another one. Yeah. They All three were different from each other. What were they doing? I mean, I don't want to speculate about their motives, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were trying to anticipate what they thought the court would ultimately do. Back when they were hearing the case, they were still hearing the argument was frivolous. Did they want to get out ahead of that? I mean, that's just not the way I think judges ought to do their job. I think judges ought to listen to the argument, decide on the basis of what they think the basic fundamental text says, and then what the principles say. I do think the progressives, judges, lower court judges and the progressive um, uh, justices were deciding as I used to say about the Rage case, what our vote we lost the Rage case six to three. Who did who who did we get voting for us in medical marijuana? Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Thomas, and Justice O'Connor. We lost Kennedy, we lost Scalia, then we lost. But the progressives, we never had a shot at them, as it turns out. Even though we had all the great facts, we had the sick and the dying, and it was California, and it was the Ninth Circuit. We had marijuana. We had the whole progressive ball of wax there. We never had a shot at them. Why? Because they put their principled commitment to superior federal power above any compassion they might have for the sick and the dying. Now, kind of have to admire them for that. So you've mentioned Scalia. You've mentioned... Roberts, someone you haven't mentioned yet is Justice Thomas. And a couple of weeks ago, you wrote 
a really, really, I don't know what the right best, I mean, I don't want to undersell it. I mean, it was an extraordinarily kind and almost moving sort of contribution to the National Review Symposium, where you talked about Justice Thomas as a hero. Um, I gather Justice Thomas is the closest we've ever come to the, in, in, in the, the recent modern era, to the, the, the Republican constitutionalism that you're espousing. Yes. I mean, he comes the closest. I mean, I started off by saying, and I have always said that I, I when everybody asks me who you're just, who do you, what justices do you like, my position is I don't like any of them, basically. I mean, throughout history, it, you know, I would like to like Justice Rufus Peckham because he wrote the majority opinion in Locker. I'd like to like him. He was also in the majority of Plessy versus Ferguson. How can I, how can he become a hero of mine if that's how he voted? Now, he was on the court for like three weeks or something or maybe three months. I mean, I could make excuses for the guy, but why would I want to? They all are problematic. Um, so I always decline to state I have a hero or somebody I particularly like. I like individual, I like, for example, I like uh, Justice Harlan. I like his dissent in Plessy. I like his dissent in the civil rights cases. I like a number of things that he did. I don't like his dissent in, in Lochner, but it was better than Holmes' dissent by a wide margin. Um, so I kind of like him, but I, obviously I can't really like him all the way. Just, and, I, and the same way with Justice Thomas. I can't like him all the way. I don't agree with everything he does. And he does have a bit of the old judicial restraint part of him. It has, he hasn't completely transcended his roots in that regard, but he's the comes the closest of somebody who's prepared to put the written text of the Constitution above that of what the Supreme, what long dead justices have told us by way of precedent, and it's that that he that he and Justice Scalia quite consciously disagreed about. They mention each other in public when they talk about their stance on this, and you know. Nino would say, well, Clarence, you know, he would, he would overrule a bunch of cases, and I, w- I just wouldn't do that. That's the context in which he said, I may be an originalist, but I'm not a nut. Right. And, but in addition to their stance on precedent, Thomas traces everything back to the Declaration in a way that you do, but a way exact, precisely the way that Scalia rejects. Yep. Um, now, in getting back into the, the past Supreme Court justices, it's sort of a useful segue into what was going to be my next question. You, you dedicate a, a significant amount of the book to tracing the arc of Republican constitutionalism through the course of history, right? Um, both justices and uh, other 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 figures, right? So you the rise of the modern Democratic Party in the in the 1830s and 40s is something that people don't know about. Yeah, and so you know, but there are very few characters, as you just said. You don't you don't hold up a single figure as sort of the ideal Republican, right? So I was actually sort of. I was sort of surprised. Um, uh, I can't remember who comes first in the story, but I think you first point to Hamilton, maybe, and Hamilton's um, sort of stressing the importance of the judiciary as the protector of rights. Um, And I thought, well, that's that's you know that's interesting because Hamilton was such a national power guy in a way that you you wouldn't like. And then in the next part, you you sort of point to Jefferson's criticism of national power, um, while at the same time. Uh, you know, Jefferson was not exactly a fan of federal judges. Um, but is there, who, who comes the closest, do you think? Or do you have two or three sort of figures who come the closest in history to embodying this trace of Republican constitutionalism? Because you're tracing it through history, um, the, the thought, but, I'm try, but, but never quite pinning it on sort of an ideal figure. Right. I, I, I think you're misremembering. Maybe I'm misremembering. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure I say nice, I see, say nice things about something that Hamilton said in Federal 78. Okay. Um, and uh, who was the other person? Jefferson. Jefferson. And to be clear, you don't I, you don't hold either of them I up. I think as I ideals. hardly ever talk about Jefferson at all. Um, 
I dedicated my last book to James Madison in part. Um, I think Madison comes the closest. He himself, as we all know, his views evolve. Um, he's, I, start, I spend a lot of time, I spend a, whole, a beginning of one chapter talking about his remarkable essay called Vices of the American Constitutional mm-hmm. uh, uh, System. Uh, because he wrote this as a working paper for himself. It's not like the Federalist Papers, which can be dismissed as a propaganda series that was meant to convince the public to support the Constitution. This was a t- He went back to Montpelier. I just visited his study a few weeks ago where he wrote this. And he took all the books that he had there and the books that Jefferson sent him from France, or from, he had ordered being sent over from his place in Monticello. And he fi- tries, well, we've got to figure out what have we done wrong? Why are things not going the way we thought they would go under our state governments? Why, what's wrong with Republican theory? And he tried to figure out his mistake. And then he produced this document for, as a working paper for himself, so we know he meant it because it was for his own benefit. And he diagnosed the problem, and that led to our Republican Constitution, which was different than what had come before. Now, but he himself when he went into the convention, had a certain view of the Virginia plan was what it was. It didn't end up being what got put in. We got, we got a compromise, and the compromise, I think, was superior to what Madison wanted. Mm-hmm. So I would still put Madison out there as the guy who f- first figured out and put words. I don't know if he's the first one, but he's the one I know about, um, who figured it out, put it in paper, and then actually behind the scenes was instrumental in getting the convention held in particular in getting Washington to show up because until Washington agreed to show up, nobody thought this was a serious thing. And, um, uh, and when Washington, and, and he wheedled and got behind, got everybody to, you talk to Washington, now you talk to Washington, you go talk to Washington, let's get Washington there. And then Washington finally says, okay, I'm there. And then from then on in, things started to happen. He was a big player, mostly behind the scenes. He was 36 years old. He was a young, very quiet, guy, not super well-known, somewhat well-known, not super well-known outside of Virginia. James Wilson at the convention was much better known and uh, much more prominent, his senior, uh, at the convention itself. So mm-hmm. there isn't one person. I do, though, I am a big fan of, of Chief Justice uh, Salmon Chase and how his constitutional vision first animated the Liberty Party, which was a expressly and single-issue anti-slavery party. When that didn't pan out, then he helped found the Free Soil Party, which was a non-extension into the territories anti-slavery party, which did much better. And in fact, it ended up, Chase ended up becoming a, a free soil senator. Charles Sumner got to the Senate as a free soil senator from Massachusetts. So that's what the free soil party gave us. And then eventually, when that didn't pan out, it was the Republican Party. And the Republican Party's constitutional platform had been written by Chase for the Liberty Party, and it just kept getting transferred from one platform to the other platform. And then he ultimately is the chief justice that Lincoln appoints to replace um, uh, Tawney as Chief Justice. So I, I, I do give him a lot of credit as well for having developed the theories that became, that underlied uh, the, um, the amendments that improved our Republican Constitution. Well, actually, oh, so Madison's the last point I want to focus on before opening up the floor. You know, when I was your student, you know, I'd come to your office, office hours, and you'd explain to me how wrong I was. Um, now, you would explain to me, Adam, how wrong I was. You forgot how those conversations <laughs> went. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you actually calling it an explanation. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I was struck at the time, and I've always, I've always thought of this as I've sort of debated with you and, and, and read you over the years. You had just, I mean, you were visiting, so you had sort of a sparse, you know, you didn't have a whole lot on your desk, but you had a picture of your family and you had a picture of Madison. You had a small little portrait of Madison. And I was struck by it at the time 
You, it's true, and, and I forgot that. So you do remember that. That's yeah, true. It I, well, it was either that or, or listen to you telling me how wrong I was. So. <laughs> um, but I was struck by that because I've always read Madison as being slightly less trusting of judges and slightly more trusting of democracy than, than, than your approach. And even the approach in the book, right? Because I, actually the one paper I brought with me in case I wanted to quote is The Vices. I mean, The Vices is a, a tremendous document. But as I was going back over it this morning... Um, he does talk about the problems of Republican government, the problems of democracy, but he never points back to judge. I could be wrong. He doesn't point back to judges as the solution. Not then. Not then. And even in federal, so so much of what's in the vices shows up in Federalist 10, the idea of finding, as he famously said, a Republican remedy for the vices most incident to Republican government. And so the point where I end up disagreeing with you um, very cautiously is is that I, I read Madison's republicanism as trusting in the elected branches of government in the long run um, through checks and balances and the goal of, of, of preventing government by majoritarian passion, right, but trusting in government by long-term majoritarian reason. And so I think there's a lot of Madisonianism in your book, but Madison never goes to the judges in the same way that you do. That's much more of a Hamiltonian argument, I think. Is that right, or am I just wrong again? I think you're, you're right up to a point, because he doesn't at that point to go to uh, refer to judges. In fact, he's corrected by Jefferson. Here's where I do talk about Jefferson in the book. Now I remember. He's corrected by Jefferson in saying, you know, when Madison is dismissing the, uh, the need for a Bill of Rights, because mm-hmm. he called them parchment, he dismissed them as parchment barriers. They had actually worked as parchment barriers. They, they, he was right. But Jefferson, well, you kind of underestimate one of the values of a Bill of Rights is that judges can enforce it. So, mm-hmm. so his buddy and his mentor, his real, his ten, Ma- Jefferson's 10 years Madison senior, Madison looks up to him as a mentor. His mentor says to him, you forget about the judges. And so you're right, Madison, that was not Madison's instinct. It was Jefferson's instinct. But here's where I think you underestimate Madison's um, uh, uh, acceptance of the importance of the role of judiciary is when... McCulloch versus Maryland was decided. Let's talk a little teeny bit about the bank controversy, which I do talk, I tell this whole story in the book. So the bank is proposed, it's the first great constitutional crisis that we have in the country, controversy as to whether the bank's constitutional, whether it's within the enumerated powers. The Hamiltonians, uh, who are calling them, who are the Federalists, they are saying it's okay. Hamilton gets Washington to sign the bill for the bill. Over the constitutional objections of James Madison as a representative from Orange County, and Secretary of State uh, Jefferson, who writes an opinion, and, and the Attorney General Edmund Randolph, who also writes opinions, to the President saying it's unconstitutional. But Hamilton's opinion is what persuades the President, and they sign the bill. So Madison's on record is against the bill. As you all know, as most of you know, the bank was implemented, it was allowed to lapse, a new bank was then um, uh, passed, and Madison, as President, signs the bank bill into law. And people say, well, you see, he believed, and when he defended that, one of the ways he defended that was by saying, well, look, you know, the banks have, have been upheld. The banks been upheld by the practice of the country. And so it, it is said that he has now favored precedent mm-hmm. over the Constitution. I don't believe that's what that meant. It didn't, certainly isn't what it had to mean. I don't believe it is what it meant. I'll tell you in a minute what I think he meant by that. But here's my evidence that causes me to think he didn't mean that, and that is that now, later on, even after that, the bank finally gets litigated, goes to the Supreme Court. 1819 is when McCulloch versus Maryland is decided, 30 years after the Constitution is enacted. And as you all know, 
Marshall upholds the bank. So the very bill that Madison signed into law, Marshall upholds. So you'd think he'd be happy with that decision, and he wasn't. He said the problem with McCulloch versus Maryland is that he equates necessary with, Marshall equates necessary with convenient, and if it's convenient, by what hold can the courts take the case? How, how can the courts get a hold of the case if the standard's convenience? Because convenience is going to be something that the legislature is going to have to decide. We need something more justiciable he thought, mm -hmm. than convenience. Now, that is Madison later on realizing that the courts need to step in. He was fine with upholding the bank. He just didn't like the reasoning, which would have upheld, could be used to uphold almost everything. He just wouldn't take yes for an answer. That's James Madison. Now, what, are, what, now what do I think he meant by his, his statement that, you know, the pr practice has shown that the bank is constitutional? I think he means, okay, banks are constitutional. First of all, it was a close call. Whether it was an incidental power or not an incidental power is kind of a close call right there. And he said, he refers to it when he's justifying it as the almost necessity of it. So it's like close to being necessary. It's that close. He said, oh, people decide. Look, reasonable people disagreed. Is it really necessary or not? People said it is really necessary. If it's really necessary, it's constitutional under Madison's reading. If it's not necessary, it's not constitutional. So what does Andrew Jackson do? when he vetoes the bank the next time. And what Andrew Jackson does is he vetoes it. He says it's unconstitutional. Why is it unconstitutional? Notwithstanding precedent. He said because um, it's not necessary. And I, as a, a, and I get to exercise my, I, my veto power gives me a legislative vote. And my legislative vote is that it's not necessary. If it's not necessary, it's not constitutional. And I can veto it because it's unconstitutional. Well, that's kind of what Madison's view was. But he said, hey, look, precedent has decided it's necessary enough to be constitutional, banks are in. It was as though somebody today would say, whatever defects the constitutionality of the social security system might have, and whatever precedents were used to uphold it, we can, we can dismiss those precedents, but social security is constitutional. Going forward, it's okay. Everything else might be different, but we're not gonna uphold, we're not gonna upend the social security act on the basis of the original meaning of the text. Well, I, uh, people have been very patient, and so we'll open the floor to, uh, to some questions. We're recording this for a podcast, and so if you would please, when you go to ask a question, just push the button on your microphone uh, so that the green light is lit up. And just really quick, I want to say that you know, this book was written for both legal and popular audiences. Um, for further reading, especially on the necessity point, Randy has written at least one, maybe two law review articles focusing on this in the context of the Commerce Clause equivalent, right, on the Lee Optical case, which you sort of started writing about about four years ago. What was the, did you do a big law review article on well, this? Well, I have an article on the Commerce Clause in Chicago, then a follow-up in Arkansas, then an article on the Necessary and Proper Clause. I can't this remember This is the now. Rational Basis Review. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Rational Basis Review. I think we should open it up to yeah, questions because I can't remember which <laughs> article you made. Well, I was going to recommend the article whose name I cannot remember, but also Randy did a story, a cover story for the Weekly Standard with Josh Blackman on uh, how conservatives and Republicans should think about judicial appointments going forward, and so I highly recommend that too. So the title of the next book can be 200 Years of the Supreme Court. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> not as whatever, bad as they made it out to be. Whatever the next book is, I hope we can convince you to come back and talk about it. You always can. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody. <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or 
Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.